Our Father in heaven, today we are just so grateful for your word. We're thankful that we can come here again today to to consider its meaning for our lives and how we can trust it as well as how we can understand it and use it and apply it. I pray that you would help us as we do so, that you'll send your spirit to guide us. Uh, We thank you for this promise. We claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we were talking about the... uh, the uh, secrets of ancient scrolls, and we talked about how Tischendorf's discoveries put the uh, critics of the Bible on their heels. They really had not expected a complete New Testament to have been discovered up to the t- uh, or back to the time of the early fourth century. But you know, it didn't take too long because critics will be critics and doubters will be doubters, right? And there's always there's always enough room to doubt, isn't there? Uh, I don't think God ever removes all occasion or opportunity for doubt. There is what we call faith, isn't there? And uh, so there's always, there's always a, an opportunity for us to exercise faith. And it's very true that even, even if we can prove and unearth and find and study, there's still some room to doubt. And so the doubters doubted, and the skeptics were still skeptical. And they pointed out that there were still over 200 years between the apostles and the earliest texts. Now, 200 years doesn't seem like a lot of time when you're looking back over 2,000 years. But 200 years is a lot of time, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, for hand copies to be made and survive and be passed from one person to the next, 200 years is an awful lot of time for there to be corruptions and, and uh, you know, meddling and, and changes to be made in the text. And so, one of the challenges to those who believed in the veracity of the Bible that the critics made Find even the merest fragment, that was one of the terms used, the merest fragment of the Scriptures earlier than the early 4th century. Find a mere fragment, and um, this would be a a challenge that the uh, archaeologists and other Bible-believing scholars were facing. Now, as we mentioned this morning, the Codex Sinaiticus and similar era of manuscripts were written on vellum which is a pretty durable material, and much more durable than parchment or papyrus, which is essentially what the, the Greco-Roman world would have written manuscripts on. Parchment or papyrus is essentially just pounded, you know, plant material and, um, and dried, dehydrated in a thin sheets, and um, it's not very durable. And so the critics of the Bible were confident that they would never be able or never have to face the, cha- the challenge of such manuscripts. Now, the story uh, takes a familiar as well as an uh, a unexpected turn. Enter two ladies, two women who had a tremendous impact on the history of the Bible were two twin sisters. They were both Smith was their maiden name. They're twin sisters, and they had been briefly married um, uh, to uh, Mr. Lewis and Mr. Gibson. So they had different last names, but they were Orientalists at Cambridge University. They were expert scholars in the Middle Eastern world. And uh, they wanted to study manuscripts. And where do you think they would go if they wanted to find the most ancient manuscripts imaginable? Where would they go? They would go to St. Catharines. That's right. And so they made the trip, these two women. And you remember, this is in the mid-1800s, late-1800s. For two single women to be off traveling in the Arab world was quite a feat. It was quite an unusual circumstance. But they're off in the Bedouins and and, uh, traveling across Egypt, making their way to Mount Sinai and St. Catharines Monastery. And uh, here in 1891, they discovered a partially erased copy of the Gospels in Syriac, something that uh, Tischendorf had never come across, but it was there nonetheless, a Syriac New Testament, or at least Gospels, part of the Gospels, which it was generally accepted, not just by these sisters, but the scholarly world admitted this had to have been written before the year 200. Now with this copy, and that wasn't a complete copy, but still, It proved that what Constantine had and the the Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus had in 331 A.D. had been in existence 130 years earlier, a big jump in time. 
and um, it, it proved that it was in, um, in circulation. Now, there's other things that you have to consider when you think about these old manuscripts. One of the things you have to consider is we know the New Testament wasn't written in Syriac, right? It would have been written in Greek. And so you have to afford some time for, for manuscripts to travel from the place where it's written to a place where it is interpreted, or if it's interpreted for it to travel or translated to, to travel to another part of the world. So, so here you have, you, you can assume that it was before 200 that John had to have been written, right? The Gospel of John had to have been written earlier for it to have been translated before 200 into Syriac and made its way to the St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt. Um, Dr. Ezra Abbott would make the next discovery, and uh, about the same time, in fact, um, this was a commentary. Now, this was in um, Armenian language, and it, was, it, was, it had been known for several decades already. Dr. Abbott was simply, dis- was simply studying a manuscript that was already known to exist. And, but what he, what, he di- what he discovered was that he could date it from a period early than 170. So this is another 30 years. This is a commentary about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it indicated in this commentary, um, Dr. Abbott showed that it it, uh, indicated that those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were held in, quote, undisputed preeminence over all other narratives on the life of Christ. So in a commentary written about the Gospels in 170 AD, now again, figure how long it takes. These Gospels have to be written, then they have to be disseminated till they come to some sort of notoriety before a commentary is written about them, right? We don't write a commentary about the letters we receive from a friend. We only write commentaries about material which is being widely consumed. Isn't that true? And so for a commentary to have been written before 170 A.D., saying that by 170 A.D., these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were held in undisputed preeminence over other narratives on the life of Christ tells us a lot. It tells us that just as we suspected earlier, the New Testament canon had been closed much earlier than the mid-late 4th century, like the critics would say. The believers had a pretty clear understanding of which books they believed to be inspired and which books were not. 170 A.D., this commentary was written earlier than 170 A.D. Um, You can see sort of the time line going back. It's putting pressure onto these critics of the Bible who said, you know, fourth century, you can't find anything earlier. Well, we're already in the mid to late second century, and uh, the discoveries would continue. Probably the most exciting fragment or manuscript, it's not really a manuscript, you can't call it a manuscript, but it's evidence nonetheless. You, You know, I think God must have a sense of humor. I think God must have a sense of humor. I think sometimes Sometimes, you know, the, the, the Bible says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And, and, and I think he also says that my word will not return unto me void, but will accomplish that which it was sent forth. Imagine how precious a leaf of Scripture were, was when it was hand-copied, made by hand. Imagine how, how uh, valuable this would have been, right? Well, this discovery was not made in a monastery somewhere. It was not a sheaf of of manuscripts long forgotten, growing dust. This discovery was made while they were unwrapping an Egyptian mummy. Somebody had used the Bible as wrapping for the mummy. Now, I say God has a sense of humor because the mummy because of all the details and and so forth of, of the find and discovery, a mummy can be easier to pretty, pretty accurately date. You know, there are records included with them. There's all, so, so I can just imagine this. Somebody had their Bible taken from them forcefully. Maybe there was some monastery plundered or some believer's house or one of the bishop or elders of one of the churches had some manuscripts. And maybe, maybe the man was killed. I don't know. There's, we don't know the story. All we know is that someone decided they would use a portion of Scripture as like we would use newspaper today. 
and we think, oh, what a terrible degradation or what a, what a, what a disrespect of the Bible. This disrespect of the Bible, this loss of whatever Christian that lost his manuscripts becomes our gain today, doesn't it? Truly God's word does not return unto him or does not, uh, it, it does not return void. It will accomplish that which it has been sent forth. And um, this mummy was wrapped in, first of all, they found a portion of uh, a, a manuscript written in Hebrew. And what part of the Bible would that you expect be from? The Old Testament. It was actually Deuteronomy. So it was a part of the Torah. And um, it was dated to go back two centuries before Christ. The manuscript would have been written two centuries before Christ. But there was another fragment that was written in Greek. And this fragment, now we know as the Rylands fragment, it contains, it's, it's only about the size of a man's hand. It has writing from John chapter 18 on both sides, front and back. So we can decipher almost a, well, eight or ten verses, parts of them, on the two sides of this fragment. But this fragment, it says, um, we, we believe would have had to have been in circulation well before 150 A.D. Now, it's generally believed that John, or I mean, we believe that John would have written his book. He was the last of the apostles alive. Um, the Gospel of John was actually not the order of is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the book of Revelation last, but in actuality, it is believed that John wrote the Gospel of John last, toward the end of his life, somewhere around 100 A.D. So you're talking about now only a time period of as little as 30 years, 30 years, from John's actually writing the document with his own hand until the, at least a Marist fragment, even bigger than a Marist fragment, has made its way, not just outside of Jerusalem, it's made its way all the way to Egypt and has been used to wrap a mummy in some 30 years, 30 to 50 years later. It's remarkable, isn't it? But it tells us, it tells us once again that the Bible wasn't written in the 4th or 5th or 6th century. The New Testament wasn't written as the critics had tried to claim. It had been written by imposters, written forgeries, who attached names of the apostles on it to give it credibility. The evidence is compelling. The Bible was, the New Testament books were in um, circulation, even at the time that we believe they were in circulation, so shortly after they were written. Here you have a, a picture of the two sides of the Rylands fragment. And uh, we can see here that um, there's not a lot left of that, but it's enough, isn't it? And the way in which we find it attached to a mummy helps to make us even more certain about the date that it had to have been written before. Um, I just think God has an amazing way of affirming his word, doesn't he? Um, who would have thought that whoever sacrilegiously took the scriptures and used them as mummy wrappings, wrapping a corpse with them, who would have thought that they would be one day um, given credit for having affirmed and confirmed the validity and the authenticity of the Gospels? But you know, what good is this unless we apply it, unless we understand it? The Bible could be the best book in the world, but unless it is used, unless it is put to use, it is of no good. And unfortunately, throughout the ages, you know, as the Bible, um, the Bible was circulated, we can see the evidence of that throughout the, the, uh, the world um, after the time of Christ, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, but there came a point when, when the study of the Bible was not commonplace. You're familiar with that, that history. During the Middle Ages... There, there came a, a, almost a, a distaste for the Scriptures. And there's a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was that, uh, you know, the elders of the churches felt that some people would, were misusing the Bible, and they would come with these false teachings. Have you ever heard of that type of thing? Have you ever heard of someone who goes off on one tangent, another tangent? Do people still do that today? People still go off on tangents. But you can understand the elders of the churches were concerned and, and their, their response was not the response that they should have had. The response they should have had is let's, 
let's get together as the body of Christ and get down on our knees and pray and open the manuscripts and study together. And I believe the Holy Spirit would have led them into harmony, into, in, into agreement, right? It doesn't mean that there wouldn't still be people that depart from the faith, uh, as Paul predicted, but they could have allowed the Holy Spirit to bring the church into unity of thought and purpose and spirit. Instead, they said, we want to have uniformity. They began working on what, was, what they call a systematic theology, where they could, they could see everything's place with every other belief and teaching, and they would, they would, they would define the truth of the Bible. You know, I was talking to some academics not too long ago, professor at a seminary, and um, he, he said, well, you know, the problem with the New Testament church is that no one had even developed a systematic theology yet. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> That's a problem? The apostles were alive. You know, they had the gift of prophecy. You didn't need a systematic theology. You had the Holy Spirit there very alive and well in the New Testament church. I think sometimes the academic world puts too much stock in its own academics. You understand what I'm saying? As if the academics are the answer to the problem. The academics didn't solve the problem of, of diversity of opinions and variant views and heresies in the early Christian church. In fact, the use of, uh, 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 um, the use of a systematic theology or a creed actually began to shift from a trust of the Holy Spirit's role in guiding the church into all truth to a trust in human methods to keep the church together. Does that make sense? Do you understand how there's a difference between God's methods of keeping hearts together and minds in love with one accord through humility and, and uh, the graces that only He can put in the heart and human methods of using human uh, influences to try to keep people uniform. There's a difference between the Spirit's uniformity and man's, or the Spirit's unity, I should say, and man's uniformity. And it came to the point where the church said, we've got to keep things uniform, even if it means asking the state to help us. Right? That's what we call the Middle Ages. Sometimes it's referred to uh, in, in a pejorative sense. But the union of church and state is not God's plan. That's not, the way, that's not the way God... Jesus says, if, if, I was, if my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. His is a kingdom of the heart, right? His is a kingdom where the Holy Spirit changes thoughts and minds and brings people into unity of, of mind and purpose, in love together. And so the, the methods, the human methods that began to be used during the Middle Ages actually began to exclude the Bible and say, say to the lay people, don't study the Word of God because when those lay people study the Word of God, they just get all these strange ideas and they, they think they have, they're empowered by the Bible to, to argue with the bishops or the elders, right? And so they actually came to discourage the lay from studying the Bible at all. In fact, for many years in many parts of the world, it was... It was prohibited, it was anathema, to even allow the Bible to be translated and written in a common vernacular, in a language that the common people spoke. The Bibles were kept in the biblical languages of Hebrew and Greek, and they were kept in Latin. But they weren't translated into the various, the various languages or, or tongues that the people would understand. And so there came this... There came this uh, separation between the educated and the clergy and the uneducated and the lay. And this, this uh, separation was not, I don't believe, what God would have had, what God wanted, but it's the history, and um, it's what happened anyway. And today we still, we still sort of have a battle, um, if I might use that term, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's still a little bit of a battle within Christianity between whether the Bible is really meant for common people or whether it's something only the theologians can find the answers in. Is it? And so that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit um, this afternoon. I want to tell you a story that I read about, um, well, some time ago, and it came from the uh, Divinity School at a famous university here in the United States. Um, each day they had a, uh, each year they had a special day when they would invite all of the pastors in from the surrounding region to listen to an academic lecture from latest scholarship. 
And on this day, um, it was, it, this particular day was going to be held outdoors on a grassy area, and the pastors were invited to bring their own sack lunches, and uh, they would listen to a lecture by a, a, a uh, famous theologian by the name of Paul Tillich. And um, Dr. Tillich spoke for two and a half hours, longer than I'm going to speak this afternoon. It's going to be less than two hours, actually. Um, and for these, during these two and a half hours, he proved, and I use that advisedly, he proved that the resurrection of Jesus could not have happened. He quoted scholar after scholar after scholar and book after book and concluded, since there's no such thing as a historical resurrection, the religious tradition of the church in believing in the resurrection is groundless. Uh, it was based upon... Uh, furthermore, the church's teachings themselves are based upon the belief in a risen Jesus. So it wasn't just the resurrection hope that was groundless, but the belief in Jesus as a risen Savior was also called into question. Jesus could not have, in fact, been raised from the dead in a literal sense. And um, after the end of his two-and-a-half-hour presentation, he asked if there were any questions. At first, no one moved, and after about 30 seconds, there was an old, dark-skinned preacher with a head of woolly white hair who stood up in the back of the auditorium. Everyone turned to view this old pastor and to listen to the question that he would raise. Dr. Tillich, he began, I, I got one question. And as he says this, he reached into his sack lunch and he pulled out a Bible, uh, not a Bible, an apple, and began eating it. Dr. Tillich, crunch, 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 crunch. My question is a simple question. Crunch, 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 crunch. He continues to take bites out of this apple as everyone's watching and waiting for his question. He says, now, I haven't never read all those books you talked about, crunch, 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 and I can't recite the scriptures much in the original languages, crunch, 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 and I don't know, I don't know nothing about Niber and Heidegger, crunch, crunch, munch. By this time, he's finished the apple. All he has is the core. All I want to know, he said, is this here apple, was it sour or sweet? And Dr. Tillich said, quickly responded in good scientific fashion, I could never know. I didn't eat that apple. I haven't tasted your apple. I can't answer the question. And the old preacher said, neither have you tasted my Jesus. And he sat down. Um, it's said that there was about a thousand in attendance and they erupted in a standing ovation. The simple preacher who hadn't read all the academics, he had tasted Jesus, and he did know him as his Savior. And so the first principle for Bible study that we're going to talk about here today is that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and we, we remember... 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, which says, But the, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, all of the letters behind my name can't help me as much as simply having the Holy Spirit working in my heart. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be educated. Please, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that well, plus there's more than one way to be educated, right? Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be scholarly or go in depth as we study the Word of God. I'm not saying that at all. 
I'm not saying we should be lazy, half-hearted surface readers. All I'm saying is, in order to come to a correct understanding of the Scriptures, we need, by the grace of God, to have only that which He can give us. And that's the guidance of His Holy Spirit. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And in, in order for us to understand the Word of God, we have to allow His Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. And when I, when I say that, I say that, I say that with full cognizance that it is applicable to every single person listening to this. Because no matter where you are in your Bible study, whether you are a, you know, whether you've memorized much of the New Testament in Greek, or whether you've simply read a few devotional books about the Bible, no matter where you are on any continuum that you could dream of about in Bible study, no matter where you are, the Spirit is still working in your heart and life. That's the reality. I believe that. I believe God is working in every single heart, looking for room through His Word, yes, and through other experiences of life and nature and, and, uh, and so forth, His providences. But when you hear Scripture, when you, when you study Scripture, whether you're reading it in a devotional book, whether you're hearing it in a sermon, whether you're studying it yourself, whether you're doing exegesis on a, in depth in a passage, it doesn't matter. When that when that Scripture comes to your heart and the Holy Spirit makes an application of it to your heart, you and I have a response that we have to, we have to, cho- we have to choose. We either submit our hearts and wills to Scripture or we put up a barrier and begin resisting what the Scripture would teach us. Does that make sense? I like to say it this way. The Word of God never leaves people the same. It never leaves people the same. Just like the sun, one of the object lessons that makes a lot of sense to me is if you put a ball of wax in the sun, what does it happen? What happens? If you put a ball of clay in the sun, what happens? The same sun has two different effects depending on what material it's affecting, right? And in the same way, when truth shines into our hearts, we choose what type of material our hearts are made of. Our hearts are either made of wax or of clay, depending on our choices. And when truth comes to my heart, my response to it determines whether my heart becomes softer or it becomes harder. But one thing is certain. It cannot stay the same. You don't have plastic hearts or steel hearts or any other heart. You understand, I'm using the illustration. When the truth shines into our lives, we have a choice to make. And it either becomes, our hearts either become softer or they become harder. So it doesn't matter who you are here today. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And if you're willing to open your heart to the Holy Spirit to allow Him to soften your heart, you will be led to a greater understanding of truth, no matter where you start at. Does that make sense? No matter what your educational background or age or ethnicity or economic status, doesn't matter. Those things are immaterial to God. What matters to God is your heart and the choices you're going to make within that, uh, within that decision of a response. The second thing that I'd like to see from the Word of God is that understanding truth is progressive. Now, this doesn't mean that some of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, you know, I'm further along in my Christian journey than you are. No, that's not the point at all. The point is we all have to be moving. Does that make sense? We're all coming from different places and the Holy Spirit is teaching us in different ways. And we need to have more respect for one another as fellow Christians on this journey, don't we? Rather than less. We need to have more respect for what God is teaching and what God is doing. But the point I'm trying to make is that the truth, we cannot stand still. The truth will have us moving and changing. John 12, verse 35, Then Jesus said to them, A little while the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest what? Darkness overtake you. Do you get the idea that the the source of light is moving? Yes? Walk. Walk in the light. Or else the darkness is going to overtake you. If you stay stay in one place, the light's going to move on. And that's simply, I believe, Jesus trying to tell us, look, if you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, you have to be willing to grow in your experience and your living of Scripture, right? It doesn't matter how many degrees you have or how long you've been a Christian. What matters is, are you still moving? Are you still growing? We don't reach some plateau where we say, okay, well, you know, look at all those people down there. I've, 
I've got enough understood. I don't need to learn anymore. No, it's not the way it works. We're always learning, always growing, always walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. Uh, John 12, verse 36, Jesus says similarly, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So Jesus would have us continually learning and growing. I like this one in John 7, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, that's, you know, that's, this is the New King James Version, it's a little bit maybe archaic, the way that's stated. If anyone wills to do his will, what is that saying? Put it in common English today. Anyone chooses, desires, wants to do his will. He will know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, what did Jesus say? Did Jesus say, anyone who has access to the Codex Sinaiticus will know my will and my doctrine? Is that what he says? Anyone who can break down the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Syriac, they will know my doctrine. Is that what he says? It's very simple. What I love about the religion of Jesus is that it is accessible to anyone. Man, woman, child, uh, nationality, ethnicity, uh, language, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter. The religion of Jesus is equally accessible to everyone. It's dependent upon a willing heart. If you're willing to obey the word, you will be taught the will of Jesus. You will be able to understand his teaching, his doctrine. And in his particular setting, he's saying whether I'm speaking the truth or whether, you know, I'm speaking of only myself. But that is a principle, a very, very important principle. It just depends upon a willing heart. A willing heart. If there's first a willing heart, Paul told the Corinthians, it is accepted not according to what we don't have, but according to what we do have. You know, many times I have been, I have found myself wondering what God's will is. Have you ever found yourself in that circumstance? Have you ever found yourself saying, Lord, what direction do you want to take my life? And we know that God doesn't usually write these things in the sky for us, does He? He doesn't usually send us some, you know, by FedEx or, or some UPS or even email from the heavenly court saying, this is what I want you to do. So sometimes it's a little bit of a mystery, and, and we, we pray that we will know God's will. And it's almost as if we're praying that God will reveal His will to us. Isn't that what we're usually praying? We're usually focusing on God's part. We usually focus, I'm talking, maybe, I'm, maybe, you're, maybe the pastor is the only one that does this, but when I am trying to figure out God's will, I'm usually thinking, God, you need to tell me. But you know what God's thinking? Chester, you need to first be willing. Let's go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago. When God reveals his will to us, and we're not willing, what happens to my heart? It becomes hardened. So God in His mercy does not reveal some things to me because He knows I'm not ready or willing to accept it. You see, I've, 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 I've become completely sold out on this idea. I really believe it's the truth. God is always able to reveal to us in one way or another what His will is. He is not, he is not limited in His capability to show us His will. The, the limitation is my willingness to listen and obey it. And I have found, this is my, only my personal testimony, I have found that if I will spend more time praying about my willingness to be surrendered to whatever God shows me, He will much more quickly be able to show me than if I just spend my time praying about His ability to show me. Does that make sense? I focus more now when I pray about His will. I focus much more on my willingness. Because the Bible says, if anyone chooses or wills or wants to do His will, He will know, considering the doctrine. And listen, God doesn't have to write it in the sky. He can show you, he can show you for sure what His will is for your life in a thousand different ways. And He'll do that for you. 
He's certainly done it for me. So, if any man chooses or wills or wants to do his will, he will know of the doctrine. He will understand truth. So, understanding truth is progressive. Next principle is the Bible is written for the what? The Bible is written for the common person. Now, some of my theologically inclined friends or, or academic friends, they really don't like this idea. I, I, I'm st- even within the church, there are those, not critics of the Bible, just theologians. I mean, you've spent your life and you've spent tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars getting a degree, and, and, and anyone can understand the Bible? Yes. Anyone can understand the Bible. I'm not saying we don't need degrees. I'm not saying we don't need theologians or people to study. All I'm saying is, listen, the Bible wasn't written to be mined by experts. It was written to be comprehended by common people like you and me. It was written by common people, right? For common people. And it's so much so. Look, look, what, look what Paul said to the... Um, to, the, to, the, to Timothy about his experience. And that from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures. How old? From a child. Well, maybe Timothy was just a prodigy. Well, he was a good kid, but this, he didn't have a doctorate when he was a child. And that from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. The Bible is accessible to every single person. I have known very brilliant people blessed by the Bible. I've known common people blessed by the Bible. I've known less intelligent people. And I'm getting a little, maybe, um, maybe I'm um, confessing too much here. But you don't have to be too smart to understand the Bible, right? No matter your intellectual capabilities aren't nearly as important as a willing heart, as a a desire to know the truth. Oh, I'm afraid sometimes that we're in danger of slipping back again into the, the way of thinking of the Middle Ages. And let me just give you an example of this. And I don't, I... I know we don't, have a, we don't have time to go into great length or detail about hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. But there is today a, the preferred academic approach to Scripture is what we call exegesis. And we believe in exegesis. Exegesis means simply drawing something out of a text. Instead of reading what you want to see into the text and getting it there, it's actually saying, does the text say what it means to say? But the, the, the method of, of scholarship today says, basically, I can learn the truth. I can learn the truth through drilling deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So I take this one passage by Paul, and I look farther and farther and farther. And in order to do that, I have to start looking at the words, the original language, the words. And then I look closer and closer to those words and, the, and where those words are derived from and the derivative and the, the, whole, the whole etymology of what, how those words were formed. And from all those things, I begin pulling out, well, he really was meaning this because this word came from that word and that word and that word and that word and that was what it meant back then. And so this is what it means now. And there's some of that that's valuable. But the bad news is that most of the Bible writers didn't even know the etymology of the words they were using. Okay? They were common people. And furthermore, if we drill too deeply and hang too much of our theories on a, a word or the etymology of an original language word, we're almost going back to this verbal inspiration concept, aren't we? This idea that the words were somehow dictated by God. What if that wasn't really the... I mean, that actually was. The, wait, the Bible writer actually chose that word, didn't he? It was the best word he thought of, but he might have could have used a different word, you know? It was a thought that was important. And all I'm trying to say is if we do that kind of study at the expense of having a broad view of Scripture, of studying widely in the Scripture, we can find ourselves coming to conclusions that aren't warranted in the Scripture. The common person may not be able to go into all the different nuances to parse all the verbs in the Greek or, or to understand all of the, you know, punctuation, little, little um, tittles and jots of the Hebrew. 
But the common person could read what David said about it, what Isaiah said about it. He could read what Jesus said about it. And from all of those views, even in the common vernacular, the common person can arrive at truth. Isn't that wonderful? So while we, while we want to have a correct understanding of the truth, we want to study carefully. We want to have we want to remember the Bible is written for common people. Even a child can understand the Bible. Even a child can be made wise through the Scriptures unto salvation. And that's a wonderful thing. The Bible is written for the common person. Another point we'll make really quickly here. There, was a, there is a right and a wrong interpretation of the Bible. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 um, the King James says, study to show yourselves approved. The New King James, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And of course, if there's a right way to divide the word of truth, there must also be a what? A wrong way. There must also be a wrong way. So there's a right and a wrong way to interpret the Bible. The, the, the last of these principles we're going to look at is that misinterpreting Scripture may be fatal. We touched on this this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3. As also in all his epistles, Paul's writings is talking about, are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So there's, there's, there's something really at stake here, isn't there? There are some risks that we take in studying the Bible, and particularly if we don't study it in the right way. And so this is what we want to avoid. We don't want to study the Bible and only have it end up to our own destruction. We want to study the Bible for our own salvation, right, and for the salvation of others. And so um, this is another way of saying it in one of my favorite books, Great Controversy. Before any, accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. A plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. Um, that really means, what that means is, and I'm using this as an illustration of our last, of our last uh, text there, um, those who are unlearned and unstable twist the Scriptures, or, or rest, wrestle, like take them out of their proper place and try to use them in a way they weren't intended to be used. Have you ever seen that done? Um, the, I've, I've had all kinds of people come up to me with all kinds of ideas, and they say, read here, the Bible says right here. Sure enough, right there, it says this. I said, yeah, it says that. Well, it means this. I said, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> There's a difference between what the Bible says and what you say it means. Okay? First of all, the Bible wasn't even talking remotely anything in the context about the subject you're trying to apply it to. So you can't say that it says that. Oh, but it says right here. No, you say it means that right there. And I have to keep pulling them back, pulling them back. The Bible doesn't say that. You think it means that. There's a difference. Now, some things aren't abundantly clear in the Bible, but if you're going to accept something as a doctrine or precept, something you should follow and something you should obey, it should be, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord in its support. In other words, the Bible should actually say on the topic that you're discussing what you claim it says. Don't tell me, well, it really means that, and after a six-hour convoluted pathway through all kinds of other things, try to convince me that what it means. Listen, I'm convinced the more important a doctrine is, listen to me carefully, the more important a doctrine or teaching of Scriptures is, the more clearly it's going to be found here. I just think that's the kind of God we serve. And if you have to, round, if you have to lead me round and round and around and around the neighborhood and all kinds of assertions and assumptions about all kinds of verses before you get me back to what you think this text is saying or meaning, it's either not very clear, it's not very important, or both, Right? The more important a doctrine or understanding in the teaching, a teaching in the Word of God is, the clearer it is in the Scriptures. And so, um, I believe that we should be asking people, if they have an idea that they want to share with us, does it really say that, or is that what you think it means? Kindly, but firmly. And uh, why? Because those who are unlearned and unstable twist the Scriptures to their own destruction, and that means it can be fatal. I want to share with you another principle that I have found very helpful. 
I used to, I used to chase the devil's rabbits. Have you ever heard that expression before? You, you can imagine, you can imagine, um, you can imagine a, a dog going hunting, and uh, you know what a dog does when it sees a rabbit, right? It, it um, takes off after it. And um, the expression, I don't know where it originated, but I think it's been around for a long time. Um, the expression is sort of like, just like a dog gets distracted and heads off, gets distracted from what he's supposed to do, chasing a rabbit. The devil puts rabbits in our pathways to try to take up all our time and to take up all our energies and to keep us distracted from what we should really be doing that's, ex that's, uh, that's going to be profitable for the kingdom. And um, so throughout the years of my, even as a teenager and onward as I was studying the Bible and met friends that studied the Bible and talked to people, there were those who came to me with their ideas. And if there was an idea that I heard that I didn't think was very accurate or biblical, I would go spending a lot of time studying that and then try to write something or argue with them and try to disprove it. It just bothered me that these heresies or these strange teachings should be going unanswered. And um, that's really good, except you know what? I think there's a time to do that, but there's a whole, a whole world out there that needs to know the truth. And if we spend all of our energy responding to error guess what? We never tell anybody the truth. And the devil doesn't care. He'll be plenty happy if we just spend all our time responding to error and never share the truth that we know, that we're confident in, that the Bible is very clear about. I came to a point in my experience where I said, you know, I've chased these things long enough. I don't like to respond to everything, write to everything. And I, I came across a text that just blew my mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, the King James says, Prove all things. Test all things, New King James says. Hold fast what is what? Good. So what is the Bible standard of understanding truth? Is the Bible standard anything that's true that can't be disproven? You see the difference? In other words, when somebody comes to me and has this strange idea from this passage or this verse or this whatever it is, and they say, come on, come on, come on, can't you see this? This is great light. This is an important message. The whole world's going to end if we just share the world this message, and this is so important. I always felt it was my job to disprove the error they were teaching me. But when I began to understand this verse, I instead began to realize it's not my job to disprove anything. If you want to be accepted, you have to prove it from the Word of God. There are actually, listen to me carefully, I hope I'm not misunderstood in this, there are actually a lot of things that aren't true that you can not or not very easily disprove from the Bible. Did you catch that? The Bible never claims that it is capable of disproving all error. What it is able to do is prove the truth. Do you understand the difference? So now when someone comes to me and they say, well, what about this? You can't show me a text that proves this wrong. I don't have to show you a text that proves that wrong. You simply have to show me a plain thus saith the Lord that proves it to be so. The burden of proof is on you, not on me, brother, sister. You understand what I'm saying? I don't have to try to disprove everything that comes around now. I simply have to ask them to prove it clearly from the Word of God. And if it can't be proven clearly from the Word of God, I'm not interested. I may not be able to disprove it. There may not be a text that says whatever, but I'm not worried about that, because the burden of proof is on the side of those who bring the ideas, or me as I study the idea. Test all things, hold fast that which is good. It does not say disprove all things, and anything you can't prove, disprove, hold on to. It says prove all things, and hold fast that which is good. We're not told to throw away that which we test and find bad, but to 
hold fast to that which we find good in the Word of God. Now, this may seem like a nuance, but for me, it was a very liberating concept. For me, it was very exciting to realize that if it's true, God's Word is going to make it clear. There'll be a plain, thus saith the Lord, and I can understand it as being something I should hold fast to. If it's not true, I don't have to try to disprove everything in order to answer those who have come to me. There are four things that I want you to realize that as we study the Word of God, and we're wrapping up here, that we should be uh, wanting to keep in mind as we study the Word of God. Um, First, other relevant scriptures. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 10 you're familiar with? Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. In fact, Jesus even used this principle. He quoted Matthew, uh, Isaiah 28, verse 10, in talking to the uh, scribes and teachers of his day, right? And uh, this is an appropriate method of Bible study. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we take things out of context, does it? It doesn't mean that we just take an assemblage of texts and we put them together and say, well, they all have the same word. Let's say they all use the same word, light. And we have texts from from Genesis to Revelation, all using the word light. And we say, this word says this about that light, and then this word says this about light, and then this word says this about light, and that says that about light, and by the time we have a conclusion at the end, well, it may be that we simply neglect to realize we're looking at English words, right? The Bible may not have used the same word throughout the Old Testament for light or throughout the New Testament for light. So I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't have a deeper understanding. Um, we need to look into those words and make sure we're using them rightly, not taking them out of context. I like to say a text without a context is a pretext. Can I give you an example of someone taking something out of context? You may be familiar with this. The gentleman who wanted to know God's will, so he decided he would study his Bible, and his method of Bible study was to close his eyes. You ever heard of that study method? He's going to close his eyes and uh, flip through the pages and uh, put his finger on a verse. And um, the verse that he read first was actually in the Gospel of Matthew. He went, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The gentleman said, well, you know, I'm not sure what God has to say to me in that verse. Uh, Maybe I better try it again. So again, he flipped his pages through his Bible, closed his eyes, and put his finger on a verse. And guess what verse he came to? Deuteronomy 15, verse 17. Thou shalt do likewise. This wasn't working too well. So once again, he closes his eyes, and he flips the pages of his Bible, and he puts his finger on a verse, and he reads it. John 13, verse 27. That thou doest do quickly. See, you can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say, right? If you take verses out of context. So it's important that as we study the Bible, line upon line, here little and there little, we're not just mindlessly lifting verses out of context, but we're saying, with each verse we're saying, is this really what the Bible's saying? How do we understand it? And then we compare it with what the rest of the Bible has to say on the topic. So... The, uh, the third principle that I'd like you to understand is simply that the Bible didn't have its words inspired verbatim, but the thoughts were. And these thoughts were written down by original authors in the native languages that they spoke, mostly Hebrew and Greek. And um, the words which they use, the thoughts which they thought, have been translated for us into the languages we read from today, right? We read them in English and in well, 800 other languages, at least the Bible's um, published in. And so... It's not necessary for us to learn Hebrew or Greek, but we could benefit from at least considering the original words, right? If you wanted to compare the use of light in the Old Testament, or the law, or, or whatever it is you're studying, you can look at all the English words, but you don't know that you can draw a conclusion between different uses of them from simply the English. Do you need to learn Hebrew or Greek? No. You can simply get a concordance. And in the back of a concordance... Well, there's different types of concordances, but I suggest a strong concordance. It's a simple method because you'll be able to look up that word in that passage 
And then you see in the column there, just next to that, you'll see what Strong's number. Every single Hebrew word used in the Bible and every single Greek word used in the Bible has been indexed into numbers alphabetically. And so you can see what word that is. Well, that's the word for light there. You look in, look in the other passage, you're looking at the word light, and you can see if it's the same word. Now, even, it gets even better without learning Hebrew. It gets even better. In the back of any Strong's Concordance is what we call a lexicon. Now, lexicon is just a fancy word for dictionary. And it's in alphabetical order, but it's in numerical order also. So you don't even have to know the order of the Hebrew or Greek alphabet in order to find the word. You look up the number. That's easy enough, right? If you're familiar with the metric system, you know, decimal system, I should say, with systems of 10, you can understand. You look up the number, and there you find a definition and the roots of that word, all without ever having taken a single class in Hebrew or Greek. You can know that you're looking at two equivalent words or two very different words. The translator simply chose the same word to to translate as. And so you don't have to learn those languages. Nothing wrong with it. I enjoy, I have enjoyed studying Hebrew and Greek. I will say that if you don't use it, you lose it. And um, don't ask me any Greek, great um, Hebrew or Greek questions, because I'll have to go get my lexicons, which I have a number of good tools. By the way, all of this is available in digital form now where it's so easy. If you have some of the Bible softwares, and many of them are free, you can just hover your mouse over the word. It'll show you the Greek. It'll show you the lexicon, the definition, or the Hebrew. It's amazing how many different um, tools we can have with today's technology. The fourth thing to consider is the historical setting. And uh, this is, this is a, uh, an important thing because, remember, the Bible writers were writing something, many cases, they were writing something that was in, intentioned to be understood in their day, right? And it's not that it's not meaningful for us today, it's simply that as we understand the situation they were addressing and the historical setting in which it was found, we can then draw appropriate applications to our day, right? If we don't understand this, this setting, we may draw conclusions and try to elicit principles from that setting which are not really accurate or appropriate for us today. Four very simple, very simple uh, principles of understanding Scripture that anyone can do. I want to give you a little exercise now to understand this text. Um, Let your women keep silence in the churches. 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Now, I'm going to ask some questions, and I want to make very clear from the outset that, ladies, you're free to, to tell me what you think, too. Um, but we're going to talk about why. If we simply took this verse in isolation, would it mean that women couldn't preach? Would it mean, would that be all it meant? Oh, if we, listen, it's not just... You couldn't sing either. I mean, to take it literally, you wouldn't be able to sing during the song service, right? I'm not sure about our pianist, if that would be, you know, she may be silent, but she's making noise over there, you know? Um, would it be allowed for an instrument? I don't know. But you understand what I'm saying. If we were to take this literally, we might have some challenges. And I have met Christians, you might have met them too, who believe that this had a meaning, like that a woman shouldn't talk in church. Um, I won't go into these stories. What about other relevant scriptures? Any other relevant scriptures that we could use in understanding this verse? Just off the top of your head. This isn't a, maybe a good model for Bible study because we're not getting our concordance out, but I think in a group session like this, we can probably think of a few verses. Any verses that you would think that would be relevant? Any verses in the Bible of women... Leading in worship. Okay, by the riverside. Sabbath morning. Paul meets with a group of women who are evidently not being silent, right? <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Oh, you're getting ahead of me there, though. Yes, I understand. 
Um, so we have prophetesses who, who took part in worship service. So clearly there are other scriptures that a, that a literal understanding of this verse would conflict with. Does that mean we don't interpret the Bible literally? No. We, but the point is we need to understand the historical setting. We need to understand all four of these before we can come to a conclusion, right? So other relevant scriptures already point us to the idea that we might not be able to make two... We should be careful how we interpret this verse, because obviously, even in Paul's own writings he, he, and Paul's own historical accounts, he speaks of women who were not silent in churches, right? Okay, so that's clear. What about the context? Has anyone looked it up yet? Context. Very, very important in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, now you're getting to historical setting, aren't you? What is 1 Corinthians 14 about? Prophecy in tongues. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's saying, you know this idea of having everyone speak in different languages without interpreters so that it's just a bunch of noise and confusion? Not a good idea. Let people speak one at a time, and when they speak, have a translator so people can understand what they're saying. Okay? God wants us to worship Him, not just in spirit, but intelligently. Okay? So that's the context of 1 Corinthians 14. And if you look at the immediate context, verse 33. For God is not the author of what? Confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So the context is here talking about confusion. The larger context, confusion. Bedlam during the worship service. And this leads us to the historical setting, right? The historical setting, uh, Brother Bob mentioned here a minute ago, the historical setting was that, as you would find in some churches in Asia still today, when people file in, they set segregated by gender. You know, if you go to churches, many churches, in rural areas of much of the world, it's still that way. I've been in hundreds of churches, many across India, uh, other parts of Eastern Asia, Southern Asia, um, for sure the Middle East, where I'm talking about Christian churches, Adventist churches, they come in and they set segregated by gender and age. Children in one place, women in another place, men in somewhere else. And this was the historical setting. Now, we're not there, are we? We live in Dalton. And when we go to church, we all sit together. And so it's been that way our whole life. And it never crosses our mind that people somewhere else live some, somehow differently. Or the people back then might have lived somewhere differently. But does that impact what this means? It does. It, it impacts us greatly. Because as, as uh, if they are not expected, uh, expected to speak, verse 35 says, If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, the, if, if the men are sitting over there and the women are sitting over there and I'm preaching and Mrs. A wants to ask Mr. A... Honey, did you bring the casserole in from the car? And if all the women are speaking over there and they're asking questions of their husbands over here, what do you have? You have confusion. And that's the context, isn't it? God is not the author of confusion. And so this is a very simple verse. If you simply know other verses about women involved in worship, if you simply know the context, look at the context, and if you know the historical setting. The, the problems with the verse begin to dissolve away, don't they? Just with these four simple principles. And we could look at many other verses, but we won't take the time to do that today. You know, I'm thankful that the Bible is not just for the theologian, not just for the pastor. I'm thankful that God has given it to each one, young and old, rich and poor, no matter what language, nationality. I'm thankful God's given it to all of us. How about you? I'm thankful that we're using some very simple principles that He can teach us if we first have a willing heart. I want to have that kind of a heart. I want to have a heart that God is able to teach me His truth and lead me in the way that He wants me to go. How about you? Would you like to have that kind of heart? Why don't we just ask God to give us that heart today? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for giving us an understanding to spend a few minutes reviewing history, learning about the veracity of your word, 
trustworthiness. Lord, even knowing all these things, we could yet, we could yet not use the knowledge right. We need a heart transplant. You've said you'll take the stony heart out of our flesh and give us a heart of flesh. You've said that you must be born again, and we want that experience. We want a heart that is willing to do whatever you ask us to do, to, to follow you wherever you lead us. We want a heart of clay, a heart of wax, Lord, that as the sun of your truth shines into our hearts, that it might become softer and softer and be melted by your love. Lord, make us willing. Some of us may not even be, we don't want to be willing, but we're willing to allow you to change us to be willing. And I just pray that might be our experience. No matter what uh, each individual here might be facing, I know you have in your word just what they need to be prepared for this week, for this month, for this year. Make us students of your word. Help us to bring our minds to your word humbly and teachably and allow you to speak to us through your spirit because we're willing to hear. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.